You can turn with me in your Bibles back to the book of Ephesians where we'll be picking up and where we left off in chapter 3. Uh, as a member, you've seen the, uh, the summer preaching calendar in our email to you recently. You know this morning we finished the first half of Ephesians on our series on the gospel doctrines in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. For the next two weeks, I'll be on vacation with my beautiful wife celebrating our 18-year anniversary. We're grateful for God's grace. Uh, I assume you're clapping for the Holy Spirit. It's the only way we made it 18 years. Um, and then while I'm away, you'll be in the hands of two capable ministers of the gospel. I'm excited you'll be hearing from them, and then I'll be back again here, and we'll launch into the second half of the book of Ephesians and start talking about how all this gospel doctrine that we've been soaking in will look lived out as a gospel culture in our church. So you remember that's our outline for the book, right? Uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 is all gospel doctrine. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, uh, basically then, you need to live in light of everything we've just talked about, right? Walk in a manner worthy, that is chapters 4, 5, and 6, walk in a manner worthy of chapters 1, 2, and 3, the calling to which you've been called. And so gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. We've been looking at that gospel doctrine in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and this morning we'll look at the sixth gospel doctrine, the surpassing value of the gospel. Paul's been talking details about what the gospel is. Now he'll talk about how valuable the gospel is. But I want to talk to you today about Biff. If you grew up in the 80s or even remotely a fan of pop culture, then you have seen the cult classics, Back to the Future. And as much as you don't like Biff, and I'm with you, we got to talk about Biff. Because in the second movie, right, much to our chagrin, Biff gets his hands on this sports almanac from the future. You remember this? And because of this, Biff knows who wins every game for like the next 20 years or something. And so Biff goes out and consistently bets it all on sports and wins over and over and over again because he knows the outcome of every game. Now, in spite of all of the plot loopholes that we all see in that immediately, the simple reality is Biff was able to bet with confidence because he knew exactly how every game turns out. And just imagine if you could bet on something and know the future for sure. I mean, if you knew what the stock market would do for the next 20 years, I'd like to buy you lunch. <laughs> you could put all of your money into exactly the right stocks and come out abundantly wealthy 20 years from now. I mean, knowing how the future turns out would drastically alter the decisions you make today. Friends, we might not know how the stock market's going to turn out for the next 20 years, but I can tell you with exact certainty that the kingdom of God is going to continue to flourish. We know with 100% confidence that Jesus' church will continue to trend in a positive direction and not even hell itself can stop it. Paul understood this. For that reason, he bet everything on the gospel. 
his life, his money, his time, his career, his energy, his priorities, everything, he bet it all on the gospel. And it's because he knew for certain this was a sure thing. It's because of that he wasn't discouraged at all when it was difficult. For example, when he found himself in prison. And in Ephesians 3, our passage this morning, he's going to explain to the Christians in Ephesus why there is no reason for them to be discouraged about the fact that he's in prison. Take a look at Ephesians 3, look, look at verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, the dash there, if you're in the ESV, that dash just means Paul just interrupted himself, something we're familiar with, thanks to Paul. Uh, he doesn't pick up that thought again until verse 7. Then he interrupts himself again and doesn't complete the thought until verse 13. You'll have to forgive Paul. They hadn't invented Ritalin yet in his day. So, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, now look at verse 7 where he picks up the thought again, of this gospel that he's been describing, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace was, which was given to me by the working of his power. Then he goes off on a tangent again and then in verse 13 finishes the thought, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. See, everything else that he talks about in these verses we're going to look at this morning, it's all just elaboration on those main ideas. And you can see that his point in elaborating is to remind the Ephesians of the surpassing value of the gospel so that they would see that his suffering was not something to be discouraged by, but something to join him in because the gospel is worth it. Paul had been a prisoner in Philippi, in Caesarea, in Rome. He didn't consider himself to be a prisoner of any person or government, though. You'll see verse 1, he says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul understood the sovereignty of God, and he recognized the Lord's purposeful sovereignty over his imprisonment. So he's taken a moment here to encourage the Ephesians, the gospel is entirely worth all of the difficulty that he's facing, even being in prison. They shouldn't even be discouraged about this. It's not a big deal. And the reasons he gives here are all about the guaranteed power and progress of the gospel. Paul will explain that he's bet it all on the gospel. And there are essentially four reasons that he's done that. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Four reasons to bet everything on the gospel. Four reasons to bet everything on the gospel. Again, we read verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So notice the first reason to bet everything on the gospel is the gospel is a stewardship. You can see this in verses 1 and 2 here. The, the stewardship of God's grace is how he refers to the gospel. And this word stewardship, uh, oikonomia in the Greek, is literally a man management of household affairs, the administration of responsibility, the, the carrying out of the appropriate duties. Stewardship. A role has been assigned in which the steward has been given privilege and responsibility to go with that privilege. Paul saw that in the way that God entrusted the gospel to us as believers. There is a, a privilege and a responsibility to go along with that privilege. 
He's been unpacking the gospel in chapters 1 and 2 and now highlights it as the stewardship of God's grace. God's grace has been poured out into our lives, and now we in turn take that grace and pour it out into the lives of others that they might know it also. It's not just a stewardship for Paul, right? It's not just like, well, you know, Paul was an apostle, I'm just a Christian. You know, well, you're a pastor and I'm just a Christian. See, 2 Corinthians 5 describes it as the ministry of reconciliation for all Christians. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Verse 18, he continues, this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So it's like this picture, like if you've been reconciled to God, then he's given to you the ministry of reconciliation, right? If, if God has called you to himself, then he's entrusted to you the privilege of going out and telling other people that they need to get right with God. That's why he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, because of what Jesus did for us as believers, our conclusion is we can't just take this and do nothing with it. We didn't receive the gospel so that we alone would be saved. We received the gospel so that we would pass it on so that others would be saved. The gospel is a baton. The gospel is a meal to be served. The gospel is a special delivery. See, a relay runner doesn't lie down when they hand him the baton. A waiter doesn't sit down to have dinner when his table's food is ready. An Amazon driver does not open your package to play with your new toy. Maybe they do, and that's why I didn't show up. But a Christian does not sit down and get spiritually fat on the gospel. We serve the feast to others. We pass it on. There's plenty to go around. We deliver it. We hand off the baton. We share the wealth. It's a stewardship. It's been entrusted to us that we might do something with it. So Paul helps them see here four reasons to bet everything on the gospel. The first is because the gospel is a stewardship. Second, the gospel, the gospel is a prevailing revelation. Look at verses 3 through 6. Paul says, again, he's in the midst of his interruption here describing the gospel. He says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Now he refers to the gospel as the mystery. Paul assumes the Ephesians already know how he heard the gospel. You know he'd been with them for two or three years teaching daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so he would have told them the story a few times, right? If you've ever been with someone and they say like, now stop me if I told you this. And you're like, you never feel like you can be like, oh yeah, you told me, thanks, I'm good. They're like, I- I'm going to let them, you know, go ahead. If you wanted to say it, like, go ahead. They would have heard a few times about Paul's road to Damascus experience, right? We have a cultural phrase. We say, oh, well, she had a road to Damascus experience, we would mean by saying that she had a life-changing experience, something that forever altered the way that she views the world and herself. And we get that expression from the story of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to Paul and reveals the gospel to him from heaven and sends him out. When Paul describes that story in Acts 22 and 26, and you can go back and read those later to get some insight into what Paul's talking about here in these verses, he talks about how Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus, not just, hey, Paul, here's how you get saved. 
He said to him, Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes. Like, well, wait, I thought chapters one and two, like only God can open their eyes. Yeah. And God sends us to open their eyes. So God is sending us to do what only he can do. We get to be a part of what God is doing in the world. That's why Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So he's talking about people in the past didn't know all of the things that we now know. He says, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery, there's that word again, is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So it's like, now everybody in the world needs to hear about how to get right with God. This isn't just for the Jews anymore. This is for everyone. Jew and Gentile alike, they all need to hear the truth of how to be reconciled to our Creator. The word mystery is repeated four times in this passage. Now, when we think of a mystery, we think of something like unsolved mysteries. We think this is something that no one knows. The way that Paul's using the word here, though, it's something no one knew, but now we do. In the days of Moses and the prophets, in the days of the Old Testament, God was revealing incredible things to them, but they didn't get all the details about the gospel like we do now. There were things that they were just left, I mean, they're sitting there writing the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, scratching their heads going, what am I writing about? Lord, what is this? In fact, 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 13 describes it exactly that way. This is, they, were, they were literally, some of the things that they wrote down about the gospel didn't fully make sense to them, and yet they knew they weren't writing these things for themselves, but for us. So Paul says this mystery of the gospel wasn't made known to men in other generations, but now, now it's been revealed. This prevailing revelation has come to us. It's good for us to think about. When we realize that the gospel comes directly from God, this isn't a story fabricated by mankind, but a revelation from the master of the universe. When we realize that, it completely changes the way that we think about ourselves and our lives and this world and everyone living on it around us. It changes what we believe is valuable, important. It's prevailing. We realize the gospel is worth everything, everything we've got, because the gospel comes from God. See, when God opens your eyes to the truth and the wonder and the beauty of the gospel, it's not like learning something in school. It's not like learning algebra. It's not like learning calculus or trigonometry. It's not like learning facts about the animal kingdom. It's more like learning the secret to time travel. It would just change everything. It's like learning the, the secret to like interdimensional space portals. It just changes everything. The gospel is a prevailing revelation. It's not just, hey, oh, by the way, here's some information from God, some things you ought to know. No, this, this reframes everything. 
The gospel is a prevailing revelation. It alters your view of reality. It corrects all of your previous misunderstandings about life and misplaced priorities because you realize the gospel is worth everything you've got because it comes from God and it's a prevailing revelation. That's exactly what Paul wants the Ephesians to see, that they might not be discouraged about the fact that he's in prison. He's given them four reasons to bet everything on the gospel. The third now in verses 7 through 9, the gospel is a mission. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So the the gospel isn't just information that we receive, it's a mission that we're given. Think gospel, we know the Greek word euangelion is literally good news. And the idea behind that is that there would be a, let's say a village, and we know the, the army is off fighting a battle for our freedom, for our land, and the good news comes back, the euangelion comes back that the battle was won. We're safe. We get to keep our homes. The enemy can't hurt us. They won the victory for us, and our lives have been changed because of it. Now, when that good news comes, you don't say, great, thanks, and then go lay down and take a nap. You go tell the rest of the citizens This is life-changing. The battle was won for us. You guys, the enemy's not going to hurt us. We're safe. Listen, Jesus at the cross won the battle over sin and death so that people can turn to Him and be forgiven for their sins, so that they can be safe, so that the enemy cannot hurt us. And when that news comes to us, we don't do nothing with it. If we believe the gospel, we're messengers of the gospel. I mean, that's literally the mission of our church. Now, I know that we use the word literally, figuratively all the time. It's like, no, it was literally raining cats and dogs. No, it wasn't. That's called metaphorically. It was metaphorically raining cats and dogs. But this is literally the mission of our church, right? We don't get to pick the mission of our church. Jesus gave it to us, right? His last words to Christians before going back to heaven was Matthew 28. His last words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. See, to hear and believe the gospel means that you realize everyone needs to hear and believe the gospel. It's that valuable. This is why Pastor Mark Dever says, if you aren't helping other people follow Jesus, then I don't know what you mean when you say you follow Jesus. That's literally what it means to follow Jesus, is to then go on to help others come to know Jesus and follow Him. If our Christianity is all about us, that's not Christianity. Because the gospel by very nature is good news that must be shared. It it gives us a, a mission Some of you will remember Matt Thompson, the youth pastor, years ago at Canyon Bible Church of Prescott Valley. 
I always remember Matt would say, God has you where he has you to advance the gospel through you. That's just always stuck with me. That's true for all of us. Wherever the Lord has you in life, God has you where he has you to advance the gospel through you. Paul is advancing the gospel with his whole life. When he was in Ephesus with the Ephesians and now that he's in prison, he's still advancing the gospel. And he wants them to see four reasons to bet everything on the gospel. He wants them to understand the surpassing value of the gospel. And so, fourth, he says the gospel is cosmically powerful. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12 with me. Now remember, verse 7, he had said, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Now, look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be, might now, now, might now, not in the future. He had talked about how in the future, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms would worship and praise God for what he had done in the church. Here he says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is, when we think about rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, we're talking about the, the spiritual realm. We're talking about righteous angels and fallen angels that we call demons are having their minds blown by what God is doing through your life and the power of the gospel. Because God has given us, through the gospel, power in the spiritual realm to accomplish the tactical advance of the kingdom of God through our lives. Now, in light of everything that we've seen to be true about the gospel in chapters 1 and 2, the way that God the Father chose us, God the Son redeemed us, God the Spirit seals us, in light of all of the things that we've seen to be true in chapters 1 and 2, to then think, and we get to be a part. We have been entrusted this ministry of reconciliation. We get to be a part of what God is doing on earth. The Lord is going to allow us to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands that His gospel would spread far and wide in Prescott, in Chino Valley, Williamson Valley, Dewey and Humble and even all the way out into Pronghorn Ranch. It's like they need their own post office out there. So, the gospel is cosmically powerful. You remember in 1 Peter 1, I mentioned earlier, describing the gospel, Peter says, he describes the gospel this way, the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these are things into which angels long to look. But it's like the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are just sitting back going, what? I mean, like, look at that. Look at what God's doing through their lives. How's this even possible? I mean, like, look at that. That phrase, in the heavenly places, occurs numerous times in the book of Ephesians, and I think it's really telling. 
Um, it occurs at the very beginning of the book of Ephesians. You'll remember uh, in chapter 1, it occurs right here in the exact center of the book of Ephesians, and it occurs in the very last few verses of the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here in chapter 3, we the church in our gospel-advancing unity are putting God's wisdom on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And at the end of the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, he'll say, in discussing our spiritual lives, he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So throughout Ephesians, beginning, middle, and the, the bookends, over everything that Paul is talking about is that the gospel is cosmically powerful. It has power, cosmic power, over and against this present darkness. You think present darkness, man, I can think of a lot of things that fall into that category in our world today. Well, man, you better believe the Ephesians could too. And it isn't interesting that Paul isn't talking at all about the cultural issues that they're facing in Ephesus in their day. And he could have done that. He could have given them some practical advice about how to respond to the cultural issues. In fact, he could have done that in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and you'll see he doesn't do it there either. Instead, he's talking about the cosmically powerful significance of the gospel that supersedes all of the cultural realities and has cosmic power in the heavenly places. I mean, Acts 19 gives us a, a look into how many cultural tensions and dangers there were for Christians in Ephesus. I mean, man, you want a new perspective on the book of Ephesians, go read Acts chapter 19. See what happens when Paul is there. See the way that the Christians are treated. See the things that are going on in Ephesus. They were in danger. Their culture was seriously sinful. Now, you know at the center of Ephesus, as it were, life in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, and in the center of the temple of Artemis was the eternal goddess Artemis, this statue of her that was said to have fallen from the sky as a gift from the gods, and she was topless, and it gives you an idea of the mentality in Ephesus, and you think, man, that sounds a lot like Las Vegas, but this is like Las Vegas on methamphetamines, because Artemis, the statue of Artemis was a 20-breasted topless statue. I mean, their culture was seriously messed up. This statue of Artemis gives you this good idea of what the Christians were up against in Ephesus, how seriously jacked up their culture was. We can identify with that. We've got a seriously jacked up culture too. We are still living in a broken world. It's just amazing to think that in spite of everything that they faced, problems with the government, problems with Rome, persecution, prostitution, paganism, cultural practices of evil sorcery and divination, riots, monuments to pagan emperors that they would worship, they would abandon their newborn babies if they were an undesirable child. Their leadership of female priests in their culture I mean, why isn't Paul talking about current events in Ephesus? 
All he's doing is talking about the gospel and prayer. The gospel and prayer. The gospel and prayer. Come on, Paul. Look at all the things that are going on in our world. Why is it, Paul, that you won't talk about the cultural issues of our day? Why do you just keep harping on the gospel and prayer? And I think if Paul were here, he would respond, let me tell you about the gospel. Because you haven't caught it yet. You don't see why Paul isn't addressing the cultural issues of their day, but just laser beam focused on the gospel and prayer. And you haven't yet seen the, the cosmic power of the gospel. It supersedes all of our cultural realities. Paul isn't spending his time talking about all the problems in the culture because he's too busy talking about the solution to all of those problems. I mean, the, the day that they invent a cure for cancer, I guarantee you none of us will be walking around talking about how bad cancer is. We'll be walking around talking about the cure for cancer. I was uh, at an appointment a couple of weeks ago and was getting to know the receptionist at the desk and she says, what do you do? Which is an always an awkward moment when you're a pastor. I said, I'm a pastor. And, and she like, got excited. Oh, that's wonderful. Which is not usually how people respond at that moment in the conversation. Um, and she's like, tell me a little bit about your church. And so I'm telling her about us. And uh, she says, are you a relevant church? And I said, well, tell me what you mean by relevant. She said, well, do you address the cultural issues of our day so that people will know what God thinks about them? I think that's a really good question. We ought to be able to answer that. There's surely two ways to do that. We can either spend a lot of time on Sunday morning talking about the the cultural issues of this week, right? All of the things that happened on Twitter and in our culture and in the world this week. And we can show you from Scripture what God thinks about all of those things. Or we can simply keep teaching on the gospel, verse to verse, going through the Scripture, unpacking the whole counsel of God and giving you a biblical framework through which to view all of life with the gospel and prayer. So that... Next week, when there's new cultural issues, you don't need to know what I think about it to know what God thinks about it. You don't need to tell, you don't need me or Andrew or any of our other elders to tell you what God thinks about current cultural issues because we've been busy just teaching you this so that you have a biblical foundation to stand on and a biblical lens through which to view all of the world, a biblical worldview. So, presented with those two options. Do you want me to just tell you each week what's going on in the culture and what God thinks about it? Or do you want me to teach you how to think for yourself from the Word of God, which is why He gave it to us? I think we would all say, yeah, I want a biblical foundation. I want a biblical worldview. Just keep preaching the gospel at me so that I can think rightly about the next thing that comes up. Okay, well then, yes, we're a relevant church. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about all the cultural issues of the day. And if you're, if you're tempted to think that we should, remember that the temple of Artemis is destroyed. And we're all still here worshiping Jesus 
this morning, and the statue of Artemis is in a museum. So we're going to, Colossians 3.1, set our mind on things above, not on the things of this world. Paul gives the Ephesians here four reasons to bet everything on the gospel, and he's really just highlighting the surpassing value of the gospel, the, which is to say the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. He tells them the gospel is a stewardship, the gospel is a prevailing revelation, the gospel is a mission, and the gospel is cosmically powerful. So you remember verse 13 is where he's been going with all of this, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. But the point of all of this is that the, the gospel is so supersedingly valuable over and above everything else that it's worth doing whatever it takes with my life to spread the gospel, lift high the cross, share the good news, live in light of the gospel. It's worth everything we've got. So, just pause for a second and let's ask ourselves, in light of this passage, what would it look like for you to bet everything on the gospel? I can't tell you exactly what that is. That's a little different for all of us. What does it look like for you, though, to turn away from the lesser pleasures of this world and invest your time and your money and your strength and your life in building the kingdom of God through the advance of the gospel from the local church that God has put you in? It looks different for each of us, but let's be committed to asking the Lord, for each one of us, personally asking the Lord how He wants each of us to do that. Lord, what does it look like for me to bet everything on the gospel? Where are the areas of my life that I'm still holding on to things that I think are more valuable than the gospel? Ask Him to begin to change our hearts and to, to see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel over everything so that letting go of those things is nothing to us. Sell everything for the pearl of great price. If we're going to make our lives count like that for the advance of the gospel in the world, we'd better start praying. We better start begging the Lord for His help, for His Spirit to strengthen us. That's exactly what Paul does here at the close of chapter 3. We'll just read through this prayer real quick. He, you think, well, wait, he, he prayed at the end of chapter 1 also. Yep. And now he prays here too. And it's a good reminder for us that as we think about gospel doctrines, our, our doctrine ought to bring us to our knees. Doctrine is not just an academic pursuit. As the Lord reveals Himself to us in the pages of Scripture, as we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, it brings us to our knees in prayers. Lord, I want my life to be different. I want to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've been called. God, help me. I'm not doing it, Lord. I need your help. And so Paul prays. He says, verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And there's three things that Paul prays here I think we can add to all of our prayer lists. 
He prays for spiritual strength in verses 16 and 17. Look at it. He says that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And He prays for strength to comprehend together with all the saints in verses 17 and 18. It says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And then he prays for strength to know Jesus' love for us. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Get that. We're going to pray, God, we know the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Help us to know it. (laughs) to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, let's just, we could just say, let's, let's pray these things for each other. Pray for, notice again, Paul's praying for spiritual things, not for physical safety in Ephesus, although I'm sure he prayed for that too. But here he wants them to know the spiritual things that he's praying for them. So let's pray these things for each other. Let's commit to that. And our, our brothers and sisters need us to pray for them. I'll just say on behalf of your elders, we need you to pray these kinds of prayers for us because we're a mess. We're sinners saved by grace like all the rest of you. We need spiritual strength to comprehend with all of the saints and to know the love of Christ. Pray this for your elders. Let's, let's get here early at 9.30 in the prayer meeting, and let's get together and pray these things on Sunday mornings. Let's pray these things with our kids. Let's teach our kids to pray these spiritual truths, pray for spiritual strength in our inner being through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we come to the last verses of our text for the morning, last verse of the gospel doctrine section in chapters 1 through 3, Ephesians 3.20. And I want to talk to you about being on the other side of the cake, because that's where we are. We're on the other side of the cake. I still remember the first time I read this verse. I remember it vividly because of the circumstances. I really hadn't read the Bible very much. Um, I had just been saved. I was a new believer almost 20 years ago now, just barely opening my spiritual eyes and kind of rubbing the sleep out of them and looking around at this strange new world I found myself in transformed by the gospel. I was transfixed on the gospel. And I was at Lakeside Bible Church in Montgomery, Texas. I was wearing a black slipknot shirt that would scare your children. If you know, you know. Because that's all I had in my wardrobe. And I had just gotten saved, and I'd show up to church, and they'd be like, hey, would you mind just turning that shirt inside out? Because it's like, it's kind of awkward for church on a Sunday morning. And I get it. But I was standing at the, the front right corner of the room, Lakeside Bible Church, Montgomery, Texas, the, the church whose gospel culture reached me when I was dead in my sin and opened my eyes to the power of the gospel. I was standing in the front right corner of the room, looking down at Ephesians 3.20, and I'd never read it before. I'd never read anything in Ephesians before. And it was written by hand 
in frosting on a cake. See, it was a special event celebrating a party at their church, celebrating that God had answered their prayers for years together and used their giving to complete their new campus project. On a hill, smack dab in their community, they built a building. This is the first week in the new building. They didn't have to meet at a campground anymore. We can appreciate what that would feel like. I looked down and I read Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And I just remember, as a new believer, just saved, looking down at this cake and thinking, God is at work in my town. This is crazy. God is working here in Montgomery, Texas. And I was overwhelmed with the reality that God's love for me was so clearly demonstrated in the fact that I I had not given a dollar to the church in my entire life at that moment in time. Not a dollar. And I was blown away by the fact that these people gave of their hard-earned money to build this place so that there would be a gospel witness in, in this community so that I could be saved. And I was just blown away by that. And then they recognized that when they finished that it was actually God working in them and through them all along to build that building and advance his gospel and save his people. And I just, I can't get past the fact, and I think it's totally appropriate for us to recognize, like, this Sunday is the Sunday in God's sovereignty that, yes, we're preaching these verses. It's also the first Sunday that we're telling you exactly how much money we need for the new campus project. We're handing out new campus prayer guides. Byron's going to be in the back. It just blows me away. It's this verse. See, we're on the other side of that cake. We're still praying and hoping and dreaming that one day we won't have to meet at a campground, I mean a high school anymore. That the Lord would answer our prayers and use our giving And as elders, we don't want the building to be like the primary conversation in our church. Uh, We're already a church. If we never build a building, we're still a church. We're still the church. So there's no thermometer on Sunday mornings to, as though we're measuring our success by how much we've given to the new building. The new campus project is just a tool for what we're talking about this morning. It's for the advance of the gospel. It's an opportunity for us to put a flag in the ground for Jesus in our community. And so we're going to pray that God would provide $2.4 million, which is like an insane amount of money and almost nothing compared to what God can do. I think based on what he's done in our lives, based on the surpassing value of the gospel, I think it's appropriate for us to ask the Lord how he would want us to be a part of the new campus project. And it might not just be as simple as writing a check, although that's a really good idea, especially if you have $2.4 million. There's a thousand ways that you could help what the Lord is doing to advance the gospel in our church. There's a dozen ways that you could be a part of. I mean, talk to Byron about all of the things that go into the new campus project and how you might be able to, to partner with all of us in the advance of the gospel 
here in our community. Let's prayerfully consider how the Lord would use us. Because giving for the advance of the gospel, whether it's our money or our time or our talents, whatever it is that we give, giving for the advance of the gospel, it's a sure thing. You can bet everything on the gospel. Because that's not all. I mean, our, our money is just one of the things that we give God. We also give Him our time and our energy and our calendars and our marriages and our families and our possessions and thoughts. And we're, we're betting everything on the gospel. The money, that's just, that's just one thing. The Lord will take care of that. Because we've seen the power of the gospel at work among us. And like the Ephesians, we understand we're chosen by God the Father, redeemed by God the Son, sealed by God the Spirit, and so we bet everything on the gospel because we know this is a stewardship from God. It's a prevailing revelation. This is a, a mission, and it has cosmic power over everything. Jesus guaranteed that he's going to advance his gospel, build his church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So, man, let's do it. Let's pray that we could build a headquarters for the advance of the gospel in our community for the glory of God. Let's reach those crazy kids with the Slipknot t-shirts out there. Let's show them with our lives that God and His gospel, He's worth everything to us. And when we throw a party to celebrate that God did it with His power working through us, let's put this on the cake. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, that's the cry of our hearts this morning. Lord, we, we recognize the power of the gospel. You called us out of the darkness. You transferred us into the kingdom of Your beloved Son. We didn't deserve that. Lord, we had rebelled against You. We turned our backs on You. Like a good and faithful father, Lord, you came after us. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. You chose us. Your son, he redeemed us. Spirit, you sealed us that we could have confidence in our salvation. So, Lord, would you help us not just to sit around and get spiritually fat at Canyon Bible Church of Prescott? Lord, we want to be a place where the gospel is advanced. We want many people to be able to say on that day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and we want Him to hear it from us, God. So would you take these gospel doctrines, these rich and powerful truths that we've been soaking in for the last couple of weeks in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, would you take them, motivate us to live differently, God, cause us to see the surpassing value of the gospel, that we would Consider everything else as, as rubbish in light of the value of knowing Christ. And Lord, you've sent us out, so help us to be faithful stewards with the mystery, the wonder of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.